It's not about living to be 86 instead of 85. That doesn't really motivate most people. It's about, oh, for someone who's got such severe heart disease that they can't walk across the street without getting angina or chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids. Within a few weeks, in most cases, we found most people can do all those things. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world. Croatia, Bolivia, India, and all places in between. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode two of season five, number 301 overall. Today we are going to be joined by someone who has been leading a health revolution for decades. His work has inspired millions and proven to be a miracle, what some would say, for those with heart disease. But Dr. Dean Ornish will be the first to tell you that a prescription for intensive lifestyle and diet changes is not a miracle. It is simply eliminating the leading causes of a disease that will claim one out of every four lives in the United States. That is 659,000 people a year, 1,805 every day, and more than one every minute. And many of those deaths are the result of a lifetime of unhealthy eating coupled with spending every day sitting at a desk and every night sitting on the couch. That lifestyle is quite literally a preventable prescription for death. And yet, it is the way that the majority of us are living our lives. Why though? Should we choose to be sedentary, overweight, ticking time bombs when there is a healthier way? A way that Dr. Ornish has helped bring to light. A way that can help even those who have spent decades fueling up on fast food and not moving their body. A way that shows it is never too late. But Dr. Ornish's work also shows that the benefits don't just stop with heart disease. They also apply to cancer, diabetes, immune function, chronic inflammation, even aging. You can improve all of them with the same diet and lifestyle makeover. Which is why today, he and I are going to pose an interesting question to you. If all of these diseases can be treated and prevented in the same way, are they really all that different to begin with? You may not always equate cancer to diabetes, but if the same poor diet and lifestyle causes both conditions, couldn't they be like cousins on the disease family tree? We will find out. And we'll also be talking about how all of this could help with the global COVID-19 pandemic. Would millions still have died? We'll be getting into that as well. And his best-selling book, Undo It! How simple lifestyle changes can reverse most chronic diseases. Perhaps even yours. My friend, it is so good to have you here. Thank you for making the time. Thank you, Chuck. It's such a pleasure to be back. It is an exciting day. Uh, by the way, Happy New Year. It, uh, it is an exciting day because your book, Undo It! 
how simple lifestyle changes can reverse most chronic diseases now out in paperback. And the thing that Dr. Ornish, I love about this book is that I think it really opens a lot of people's eyes to the fact that if they're living with diabetes, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. If they're living with heart disease, they may even be able to reverse that, but certainly can live a healthier life. It just brings a lot of, of, of hope forward. And you've been practicing medicine now for so many years. Are you still surprised that there are people who don't know that there are simple changes that they can make that can have a dramatic improvement on their health? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. And that's one of the reasons we're here today is to me, awareness is always the first step in healing and your podcast or writing a book or doing things around that can raise awareness. And I think our unique contribution over the last four decades has been using these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost lifestyle changes can be. I think one of the biggest obstacles I find, and I think you probably at, uh, at PCRM find the same thing, is that people think, oh, diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. How powerful could that be? It's got to be something really high-tech and expensive, a new drug, a new laser, a new device, a new surgical procedure to be powerful. But you know what we're finding is that these simple lifestyle changes, what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, how much love and support we have, can, be, can not only help prevent, but can often stop and even reverse the progression of the most common chronic diseases. We showed for the first time that even severe heart disease could actually be reversed. The arteries could get less clogged over time. At that time, it was thought that the best you could do would be to slow down the rate at which you get worse. We found that it's kind of like ounce of prevention, pound of cure. It takes a lot more to reverse a disease than it does to help prevent it. But if you're willing to make big enough changes, which is essentially a, a whole fat, uh, I mean, a whole foods, low fat, uh, plant-based diet, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products as they come in nature, uh, moderate exercise, walking a half an hour a day, for example, it's a little bit of strength training, various meditation and yoga-based stress management techniques, and what we call social support or love and intimacy, or to reduce it to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, love more, boom, that's it, that these simple changes could have such far-reaching implications. You know, I was trained, like most doctors, to view heart disease and type 2 diabetes and prostate cancer and breast cancer and Alzheimer's disease as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments. And yet we found these same lifestyle changes could affect the progression of so many different diseases over the years. I began to wonder, well, like, well, why is that? You know, with all this interest in personalized medicine, it was these same lifestyle changes that had such could affect so many different conditions. And then it kind of hit me in a you know blinding flash of the obvious that the reason why these different diseases have all responded to the same lifestyle changes is that they're not really so different from each other. You know, they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome and telomeres and gene expression and angiogenesis and immune function, overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and so on. And each one of these mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And the more diseases we study, the more scientific evidence we have to show how powerful these simple changes can be and how quickly we can measure people getting better or worse, depending on, on what they're doing. So um, I wrote Undo It as a way of presenting this new unified theory that um, you know, it begins with a quote from Albert Einstein that says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I tried to reduce it down to its essence. You know, again, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. 
and and that you know you don't have to have one set of diet for treating heart disease, another one for diabetes, another one for uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, et cetera. And the reason is again, because, and it's one of the reasons why you often find the same patient will have what are called comorbidities. They'll have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, be overweight, have heart disease, type two diabetes and so on. Or entire countries, you know, in uh, China 50 years ago, they had very low rates of these diseases until they started to eat like us and live like us and all too often die like us. And so we know that these changes can affect our health and our well-being for better and for worse very quickly. And the reason is, is that they're really just the same disease manifesting and in a sense masquerading in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, which are directly influenced by the lifestyle choices we make every day. Yeah, and, and you just mentioned China as an example. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with Dan Butner from the Blue Zones, and he was talking about very much the same thing when it came to Okinawa, Japan. Said in, er in the early 1990s, they had the longest life expectancy pretty much of anywhere on the world. But then in comes the standard American diet, the standard Western diet with a lot of fat, a lot of ultra processed food, just a generally unhealthier lifestyle. And all of those positive health outcomes began to really just kind of plummet here. So it's it, it, if you take a step back, Dr. Ornish, and you look at it from that 20,000 foot point of view, it really is almost impossible to say that the two don't go hand in hand. Well, Dan's a good friend. And, you know, the standard American diet has a great acronym, the SAD diet, which it is. I mean, we even found during World War II, you know, when there was rationing in certain countries and they couldn't get the, the meats and the cheeses and the butter and so on and eggs that their rates of chronic diseases went way down and then when the rationing ended, it went back up. These are large scale, you know, unwitting but real uh, experiments involving millions of people. The evidence is clear, you know. So then the question is, well, why would I want to do that? And what I've learned is that what really motivates people to make sustainable changes in diet and lifestyle is not fear of dying, but joy of living. If you tell somebody, you know, put that burger down, you're gonna get a heart attack, or put that cigarette down, you're gonna get lung cancer. Maybe for a few weeks after they've had a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything the doctor or the nurse tells them. But even then, they tend to go back to their old patterns because fear is not really a sustainable motivator. What's sustainable is joy and pleasure and love and feeling good. And when people understand how dynamic these biological mechanisms are, that it's not about living you know, to be 86 instead of 85. That doesn't really motivate most people. It's about, oh, my skin gets more blood. I, I look younger. You know, my um, heart gets more blood, my chest pain goes away. For someone who's got such severe heart disease that they can't, you know, walk across the street without getting angina or chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or, or go back to work without severe chest pain within a few weeks. In most cases, we found most people can do all those things. Then they say things like, you know, I like eating junk food, but not that much because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. It's not just about preventing something bad from happening, like a heart attack or stroke years down the road. It's like, oh, I feel so much better. I can think more clearly. You know, there's a wonderful film that came out a while ago called The Game Changers, which looks at athletes who became elite athletes and uh, Olympic medalists and NFL champions and so on when they changed their diet and lifestyle. Uh, there's a great scene in there where three uh, athletes in their mid-20s, uh, their uh, sexual function, the, 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 the frequency and hardness of their erections after a single plant-based meal was three to 500% more frequent and 10 to 15% harder when they slept at night than after a single meat-based meal. You know, everything gets more blood flow. And so when people understand how powerful these biological mechanisms are, how they affect so many different conditions and how quickly you can experience the benefits so that what you gain is so much more than what you give up, 
that's ultimately what makes this sustainable. There was a point in my life when I was that guy who couldn't walk across the street without my chest beginning to tighten. I mean, it was 10 steps and I felt like I was going to keel over from a heart attack. It, it, felt, it literally felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. But still, when I decided to make changes and live a healthier life, I was still just of the mindset that if I could lose weight, I would be okay. And that's all I was focused on. But the deeper I got into my health journey, the more I realized that it was about so much more than just losing weight. I noticed very quickly, as you said, that those chest pains began to dissipate and I could work, uh, walk greater and greater distances uh, without issue. And then, you know, it, it dawned on me that Alzheimer's, that cancer, heart disease all run in my family. And now I'm able to reduce my risk drastically for all three of those. And so what begins is just a weight loss journey. I think for a lot of people then can wind up checking a lot of those boxes. And to me, and maybe you've experienced this with your patients as well, that can be a heck of a motivator. Well, it is. And, um, you know, Alzheimer's runs in my family. My mom and all of her siblings died of it. I have one of the APOE4 genes for Alzheimer's. And we're actually in the middle now of doing the first randomized controlled trial to see if these same lifestyle changes may stop or even reverse the progression of early stage Alzheimer's. I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 40 some odd years ago when I started doing research. In other words, the same biological mechanisms are at play, less intensive interventions back then could slow the rate at which your arteries got clogged. More intensive ones like ours, we found could actually, the arteries got less and less clogged over time as opposed to more and more clogged. And I think the same may be true of Alzheimer's. Less intensive lifestyle interventions may slow the rate of progressive dementia, uh, but what's good for your heart is good for your brain. We're hoping that more intensive interventions may stop or, or even reverse it. So stay tuned for that. But it's, it's encouraging because uh, unlike heart disease, there are no effective drugs that can even stop the disease from getting worse. So if, and it's still an if at this point, but if we are able to show that we can stop or reverse the progression of Alzheimer's in many patients, it can inspire and, and give millions of people new hope and new choices in areas that they don't have. But it's also true for other diseases. I mean, COVID is, uh, of course, a big issue. And now with the new Omicron variant, uh, which is even more infectious, uh, people are really, you know, everybody, you know, we, yes, vaccination is good, of course, but vaccination doesn't keep you from everyone from getting sick, it just gives you a milder case of it. Uh, it can help prevent it. Masks, of course, can be good. Social distancing could be good. But lifestyle changes can also be good. We already know that people who have chronic diseases are much more likely to get COVID and, and to die from it. Um, but uh, we also know that when people make these changes, I mean, there was a, a study that came out just a month or so ago that looked at um, 3,000, almost 3,000 frontline healthcare workers in six countries. These are people who get exposed to COVID-19 every day. And uh, those that were following healthy plant-based diets were 73% less likely to get moderate to severe illness, where those following uh, you know, high animal protein, Atkins, paleo, keto kind of diets were 400% more likely to develop moderate to severe disease. And likewise, um, at Harvard, they found uh, the Harvard uh, Nurses and, and Physicians Health Study over 100,000 men and women that they that those um, who who made these changes were 43% less likely to get severe COVID. So it's not just avoiding the virus; it's how your body interacts with it, which in turn is also a direct function of our lifestyle changes. So when you make these lifestyle changes, it has so many far-reaching implications 
both for prevention as well as uh, enjoying life more fully. What you gain is so much more than what you give up. No question about it. And I think that looking back uh, at early on in the pandemic, when I was doing shows every day with, with Dr. Barnard, we would always get asked by the viewers the question of, well, how can a plant-based diet help me with this? And at that point, we really didn't have any answers. And it wasn't until those two studies that you just referenced uh, came to light that we started to be able to fill in a little bit of that picture. Were you surprised at all when those results began to come in? I mean, I think you said it was 73% reduction. That certainly is statistically significant. Well, it, is, it was statistically significant, but 73% reducing your likelihood of getting moderate to severe illness versus a 400%, 400% increase. You know, that's not subtle, as you, as you know. Uh, these things really are important. But again, uh, there's an article, there were, Sheldon Cohen uh, did a study with a, a different variant of the coronavirus, not the one that causes COVID-19, but a, a cousin of it, and, uh, and rhinovirus, the virus that causes the common cold. And I don't know how he got this through the Human Studies Committee, but he got volunteers that were otherwise healthy and dripped these viruses into their nose. 100% of them became infected, but not everyone who got infected developed the signs and symptoms of being sick. And what they found was that those that had four or more social contacts that was defined as either a phone or a Zoom call or a visit from a friend over a two-week period were four times less likely to develop the signs and symptoms of being sick as those who had two or fewer. So the social isolation is important in terms of avoiding exposure to the virus, but we want to make sure we're not emotionally isolated, that even if you're living separate, you know, reach out and touch somebody, you know, make a Zoom call, phone call even a letter, you know, an email, just something that, you know, we are, we are creatures of community. Uh, study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have a sense of love and connection and community. I don't know anything in medicine that has that powerful an impact. So diet's important, exercise is important, stress management's important, but people say, well, I get all that, but the love more? Well, I don't quite get that. What does that have to do with health? It may be one of the most powerful determinants, both directly and indirectly, because in doing studies over the years, I'd ask people, you know, why do you smoke and why do you overeat and drink too much and work too hard and abuse opioids and, and uh, video games and work all the time? These behaviors seem so, so uh, maladaptive. And they'd look at me and they go, they're not maladaptive. They're very adaptive. They help us deal with our loneliness, our pain, our depression. You know, the real epidemic in our culture isn't just COVID. It's uh, loneliness and depression with the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people that sense of love and connection and community. You know, 50 years ago, most people had an extended family that they grew up with. They had a neighborhood with two or three generations of people that they saw regularly. They had a, a church or synagogue or mosque or club that they went to regularly. They had a, a job that felt secure that they'd been at for 10 years or more. And many people today don't have any of those things. And, and we pay a price for that. You know, the kind of intimacy that you get from being on Facebook is not an authentic intimacy. In fact, studies one of the studies that I quote in my new book and the Undo It book is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. It's like, why is that? Because it's not an authentic intimacy. It's like, it's like here I am with my perfect life. Here I am with my family in front of the Eiffel Tower. And here I am with, you know, my son at graduation or whatever. But when you grow up with a group of people and you spend time with them, they know you. They don't just know your bio, this wonderful bio sketch of mine that you read earlier. You didn't, in my bio sketch, it doesn't say that I was suicidally depressed when I was in college, which I was, you know. But they know that when you grow up with them, or they know when you got busted, or you failed, or whatever, and they're still there for you. And there's something really primal about, you know, I see you, all of you, not just your good stuff, and I'm still there for you. And so I think we're kind of learning that 
when we have our support groups in our study, for example, that it's not just helping people stay on the diet, it's creating a safe environment where people can let down their emotional defenses and connect deeply and authentically with other people in ways that are powerfully healing that go beyond just you know, helping people stay on the diet or, or, or quit smoking or take their medicines. You know, even the word healing comes from the, the root uh, to make whole. Uh, yoga is from the Sanskrit to unite, you to bring together union. Anything that brings us together is really healing. Let's stay on this for a second. This is fascinating. I want to throw a scenario at you. Say there's a person who is just hyper-focused on nutrition, eats the cleanest diet ever known to man. However, in their personal life, uh, they are very much isolated. They're alone. Uh, they're a bundle of stress at work, and they're really not at this point during the pandemic even getting out of the house and going for a walk. So, you know, even though they are eating this ultra clean, super healthy diet, are they, in your opinion, still at that increased risk for mortality? They're at less risk, but they're still at increased risk. You know, somebody. I think it was Ram Dass said years ago, what comes out of your mouth is more important than what goes into it. So I think that really all of these things together, and frankly, it's actually easier in many cases to make big changes in a lot of things at once than just small ones. There was an article that came out uh, last month from University of California, San Diego, where they compared a traditional cardiac rehabilitation program, which is just exercise, with our reversing heart disease program, which includes the exercise, but also you know, the eat well, move more, stress less, love more components. Uh, it's, and, and they found that uh, every marker was better, you know, the cholesterol, their blood pressure, their weight, their inflammatory biomarkers, their hemoglobin A1C, et cetera, when people made bigger changes, which isn't surprising. But what was surprising is that only 40% of people finished the exercise component uh, in the traditional cardiac rehab, but 94% of people finish the, the more intensive intervention. That's so counterintuitive. It was like, well, gosh, you know, the more you ask people to do, the less likely they are to do it. But not really, because when you make big changes all at once, you feel so much better so quickly. Because again, in all of our studies, we found the more you change your lifestyle, the more you improve and the better you feel and the more we can measure improvement. And so when you make a lot of big changes and a lot of things at the same time, most people feel so much better so quickly. As we talked about, the chest pain goes away that you say, oh, I get it. You know, what I gain is so much more than what I give up. And what I gain is, you know, it's like I like eating junk food. They'll say, but not that much, you know, because I like not having chest pain. I like being able to make love with my partner. I like being able to play with my kids. I like being able to have my memory coming back, you know, and thinking more clearly, you know, and, and, and all the things that really make life worth living. So the paradox is that sometimes it's easier to make big changes than to make small ones. And by the way, Medicare is has been, you know, created a new benefit category to cover my reversing heart disease program in 2010. Uh, but just a few weeks ago, they agreed to cover my program when it's offered virtually uh, through Zoom. Um, and we were finding that I never would have, you know, if anything good came out of COVID, it was learning that when we offer our program via Zoom, it works almost as well as when we do it in person. So now you can live anywhere in the country and Medicare will cover my reversing heart disease program, which we're now doing through a company called ShareCare. If you go to Ornish.com or sharecare.com, you'll find it. And, um, you know, this helps reduce health disparities and health inequities because now you don't have to live within driving distance of one of the hospitals or clinics we train. You can live anywhere, even in rural areas, and still have it available to you. 
I love to hear that. And I think I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I saw a study at some point during the pandemic when we really saw this boom for telemedicine, um, that these virtual visits can be virtually as impactful as a face-to-face -face visit. Are you finding that with your virtual patients as well? We are. I mean, we, um, as I mentioned, we're in the middle of doing the first randomized trial to see if we can stop or reverse the progression of men and women who have early stage Alzheimer's disease. And we have been meeting with them in person several times a week. But when COVID hit, you know, almost two years ago, we had to stop doing that because they were one of the most vulnerable populations. So uh, we had ended, ended up doing it all by Zoom, uh, four hours at a time, several times a week. And had we not been forced to do it, I probably never would have. I just always assumed that it wouldn't work as well, but I was wrong. It turned out it worked almost as well as doing it in person. And now that we're finding that, we're now collaborating with the heads of neurology at, at Harvard Medical School and the Mass General Hospital, at uh, the University of California, San Diego, at Renown in, in, uh, in Nevada, probably soon the Cleveland Clinic and others, uh, because it doesn't matter where you live now. So we, you know they do the recruitment and testing of the patients locally, say at Harvard, but we do the intervention from here with our staff and we drop ship the food to them. So it really opens up the whole country and, and ultimately the whole world to making these lifestyle changes in a way that are um, that are ultimately just as powerful. And now that Medicare is covering the program when offered virtually, um, our hope is that um, many more people will take advantage. You know, I've been doing this work for 46 years and I'm as passionate now, maybe more passionate now than I was even when I first started doing it. I mean, how often in life do we get an opportunity to help people when they're suffering and empower them with information that can transform their lives? You know, I mentioned I got suicidally depressed when I was in college and having that's what got me interested in making these changes because I found what a difference it made in my own life. And so, you know, unfortunately, as doctors, we're not trained to, to about nutrition. I mean, I'm on the nutrition working group of the uh, American College of Cardiology, just like uh, Dr. Neil Barnard is. And we did a we published a study last year that the average doctor gets four hours a year of nutrition training. And the average cardiology fellow in four years of fellowship gets none, you know, because we doctors get trained to do what we get paid to do. And we get, um, you know, uh, uh, we, so for me, that's why I spent 16 years working with Medicare to create a new benefit category, because I felt like if Medicare could cover these kinds of interventions, then other insurance companies would, and they are. And if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and even medical education. So it's been a slow process, but I'm encouraged by how far we've come, and yet we still have so much farther we have to go. But I just love being able to work with people when they're suffering, because when you're suffering, there's an opportunity for change, because change is hard. But if you're in enough pain, like I was when I was depressed, or when someone else is when they first got get diagnosed with heart disease, or diabetes, or type 2 diabetes, or prostate cancer, or Alzheimer's disease, there's an opportunity, there's an interest in change. And if properly done, published in the leading peer-reviewed journals as we've done with the leading investigators. And we can show, for example, that heart disease can actually be reversed and early stage prostate cancer can be slowed, stopped and reversed. And when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes, over 500 genes, turning on the good genes, turning off the bad genes, or lengthens your telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that regulate aging, uh, you know, reducing aging at a, reversing aging at a cellular level. Um, when we can show all of that, it can redefine what's possible for people. And by doing so, that can be self-fulfilling in a good way and give millions of people new hope and new choices in the areas of our life that matter most. I mean, what could be better than that? 
not a whole heck of a lot. It's part of our conspiracy of love, you might say. <laughs> well, we're we're going to talk about that four-letter word that's got a little bit of taboo behind it here, the L word, uh, in just a minute. But I, I want to throw another scenario at you um, really quickly. Um, and this is, I, I think, at the heart of the message that we try to get out here at the exam room. So let me ask you this. Say there is a person who has had diabetes now for, say, two decades. They've struggled with their weight their entire life. Now they are in their late 60s, early 70s. They're noticing that other parts uh, of their health are, are starting to decline as well. And they feel like all hope is lost. It's too late for them to make any sort of changes that that can benefit them. So why, why even bother? What would your message to that person be? One of the things I thought when I first began doing these studies many years ago was that the younger people who had less severe disease would do better. But I was wrong with heart disease, with type 2 diabetes, with prostate cancer. It may be true with Alzheimer's, but we'll put that aside for the moment. But otherwise, with these other conditions, it doesn't matter how old you are or how sick you are. All that really matters is the more you change, the more you improve. And we found a dose-response correlation between the degree of lifestyle change and the degree of improvement in every study we've done that was statistically significant, even the length of telomeres. You know, the more you change your lifestyle, the longer your telomeres get, the more your genes change, and so on. And that's a very empowering message because it's saying like, if you're still alive and you're stable and you're willing to make these changes, even if you've got um, really bad disease, you're likely to get better. There's no guarantees, but you're likely to get better. In fact, uh, in the lifestyle heart trial, the, the youngest, I mean, the oldest patient was 86 and he showed the most improvement, but he was also very uh, disciplined and made the biggest changes in lifestyle. So I find that a profoundly empowering and, uh, and optimistic message that we can give people. Do you think it's because that older demographic kind of realizes that there's more to live for than the YOLO younger generation? Well, again, we found it across the board. It wasn't that the older people did better, but they did just as well. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how sick you are. To the degree you're willing to make these changes, you're likely to get better to that degree. And, uh, you know, it's ounce of prevention, pound of cure. If you're trying to just lose a few pounds or lower your cholesterol or blood pressure a few points, you know, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. You know, if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you failed or you're bad. Just eat healthier the next. You know, you don't have time to exercise one day. Do a little more the next. You don't have time to meditate for an hour. Do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. And it's, so it's a more compassionate approach because you can't fail. There's no diet to get on. There's no diet to get off. But if you're trying to reverse disease, which is what the Undo It book is about, that is more prescriptive. And, and, and you know, I'd love to be able to tell people that, you know, moderate changes can reverse disease, but generally it's the pound of cure. It takes a lot to do that. That's why we were the first to prove that in so many different conditions is that most people didn't go far enough. But again, when you're really sick and you can make big changes, you really experience the benefits so dramatically. I mean, we have several people who are on the heart transplant list who, uh, one guy who I wrote about in chapter one of the Undo It book, a guy named Dr. Robert Troyhertz, who's an internal medicine doctor himself living near Los Angeles. And he had a massive heart attack to the point where his heart was beating so poorly, uh, it was pumping at about between 11 and 15% of the blood with each beat. Normally, it should be 50% or greater. Uh, he was told the only thing that could save his life was a new heart. And so he enrolled in my reversing heart disease program at UCLA for nine weeks while they were looking for a, a new heart donor for him to get in better shape for the heart transplant. And he improved so much during that nine weeks, he didn't need the heart transplant. So like, what's the more radical intervention here? Uh, a heart transplant or, you know, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. This is a guy who literally couldn't walk more than a couple of steps without getting chest pain. He had to be carried up to his room. 
he, you know, he, he, he told me that, you know, he had dead patients who looked better than he did when he started this. And within just nine weeks, he's able to, you know, work at uh, nine, at 6,000 feet at Lake Arrowhead. He's gone back to work full time as a doctor. He almost never gets chest pain. His heart began to pump so much better. His ejection fraction was 30%. He called me uh, a few weeks ago. It's almost close to 40% now, four years later. Um, it just shows, again, how powerful these simple changes are and how quickly people can experience the benefits in ways we can also measure. Man, those stories. I mean, it's it just it never ceases to amaze me uh, just how dramatic these these improvements can be. Um, you've been so very generous with your time, Dr. Ornish, but I can't let you go without talking about that that four letter word, which in a lot of circles is a little bit taboo. You've mentioned it a number of times here on the program, and that word is love. L O. V-E. And one of the things you and I were talking about before the interview was um, love not really being tossed around all that much in the military. I was telling you about my own grandfather who really didn't even use that word until the final weeks of his entire life. And it seemed like his entire outlook on life changed during those final two weeks. But can you talk to us about the importance of love? and how you can even express that emotion in these most rigid of circles, such as the military? Well, the military or cardiologists, you know, I mean, it's ironic that cardiology, which is the study of the heart, which is always the symbol of love. You know, I, I think I might've been the first person to talk about it at the American College of Cardiology's annual scientific session many years ago. Uh, the irony was not, not lost on me, but also I was asked to give the keynote address at the uh, at, at the, Ameri at the uh, U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania for four or five years in a row a few years ago. And I asked the first time former four-star general Stan McChrystal if he could make a video on the power of love. I figured he'd have a lot more street cred than I would talking about to a group of military people. <laughs> you, know, you know, that wimp, you know, California, touchy-feely, Marin County guy. Um, and then the second time I asked formal, former uh, Admiral, four-star Admiral Eric Olson, who was uh, worldwide in charge of all special forces, you know, the uh, Army Rangers, the Navy SEALs, the uh, Delta Force, the Green Berets, and so on. These are guys, guys talking about the power of love. And they said, look, when you're, you know, in the battlefield, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you, it's, it's the love that really gets you through these horrible situations. You know, you'll do, you know, your, your buddy and you love each other. That's that you're, you're, you're giving your lives are in each other's hands. That's what makes it so powerful. Um, you know, it's so easy to make fun of these ideas. Oh, they're so touchy-feely. And But you know what? We are touchy-feely creatures. We're creatures of community. That's how we survived as a species, by, by learning how to love each other and take care of each other. It's what really brings the most meaning into our lives. And I think a lot of people are looking for that sense of meaning. You know, we have so much choice, but we don't have, often have a lot of meaning. And one of the ways of, of getting meaning is to love more, to love yourself and then to love others. You know, sometimes when I lecture, I'll say, which organ does your heart pump blood to first? And people say, oh, the brain or whatever, actually pumps blood to itself first so that it can then pump blood to the rest of the body. Is that selfish or unselfish? Well, it's both, you know, because you have to take care of yourself. You have to love yourself so that you can then take care of and love other people. You, you can't get what you don't have. The more you love your, yourself, the more love you have to give others. And so what I find is that when I talk about this conspiracy of love, it gives me permission to talk about things that I have found the most meaning in my life. I, when I was suicidally depressed, I could take all the meaning out of life. That's why, that's what being depressed is. You know, that sense of helplessness and hopelessness is that you feel like you're seeing things clearly for the first time. Things are bad, they've always been bad. 
you know, who cares, so what, nothing matters, big deal, why bother, all these kind of existential angst because you can take all the meaning out of life. But I later learned that I can imbue my life with meaning. And one way to do that is by loving other people and to make my life an expression of love, you know, love made manifest. Another way, by the way, is to is by choosing not to do certain things, by not eating certain foods, for example. People say, oh, you don't eat this, you don't eat that, oh, that must be horrible. I say, well, actually, no, it makes my life that much more meaningful because I know when I'm choosing not to eat certain foods, um, I'm you know, freeing up uh, resources that help prevent global warming. You know, global warming is caused by livestock consumption and all forms of transportation. I'm, you know, There's seven billion animals that get killed every year that don't need to be. So I'm helping reduce suffering from all these sentient beings. I'm, it takes 14 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. There's enough food to feed everyone. If people, you don't, again, you don't have to be vegan, but just to the degree you have a meatless Monday or just move in that direction, it frees up resources to feed the hungry. The deforestation of the Amazon is largely due to creating more grazing land for cattle. So when we can imbue our lives with meaning by choosing not to do certain things, or if you're in a monogamous relationship and you choose to only be with one person, is that, you know, the, you know, the ball and chain? Well, it can be. Or is it like, oh, I'm creating something really sacred in my life that makes it so much more meaningful and much more intimate because I can only be intimate to the degree that I can open up my heart and be vulnerable. And I can only do that to the degree I feel safe. And if I'm totally committed with someone else, we can feel safety and layers of safety that allow the arts to open, open more and more and more. The more intimate it is, the more erotic it becomes. And so you end up having these amazing experiences, different experiences with the same person instead of the same kind of experiences with different people. It's not a value judgment. It's like, oh, what you gain is so much more than what you give up, whether it's in the area of, you know, you're, whether you're monogamous or what you choose to eat or whether you exercise or however you choose to live your life. If what you gain is more than what you give up, which it is, in the ways that bring the most pleasure and meaning, that's ultimately what makes it sustainable. And that's what gives me the most passion and, and meaning in my life is to be able to share that with others. I don't think you could hide your passion if you tried. You, I mean, you are just beaming right now talking about this. And and so it has really been such a joy to have you here on the exam room today. And I wish you nothing but the best here in 2022, uh, Dr. Ornish. And the book is Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases, available now in paperback. So if you haven't uh, checked everybody off of your holiday list yet, this is a great, great, great book to give to someone who you love. Dr. Ornish, thank you very much, my friend. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's great to be back. There is a reason why Dr. Ornish has been a trusted health advisor to President Bill Clinton for decades, and why Beyonce, director James Cameron, fellow health revolutionary T. Colin Campbell, and so many other dignitaries speak so highly of him. Because no matter who you are in life, whether you've won a Grammy or you just listen to music, whether you're a politician or you just cast a vote in November, his work applies universally, equally, across the board to everybody. And there is a link to pick up your copy of his bestseller, Undo It, right now in the episode notes. Not a bad start to the year so far, huh? We had Dr. Neil Barnard on the first episode, and now Dr. Dean Ornish, and we're just getting going. Dr. Barnard, he's going to be back with me on the next show 
for our first live Q&A of Season 5. We'll be doing that live on Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. Join us then or grab the replay right back here on the podcast this Thursday. Now, a lot of you will write in and ask, when do we do these live shows? So please mark your calendar, set a reminder in your phone, do whatever it is that you have to do that the live shows are every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, because I would love to see you there as we raise our health IQs together. A final thought for today. It is that time of year when we are in the thick of New Year's resolutions. And of course, that means millions of us are trying to lose weight. But are we doing it in a healthy way? Depending on what research you look at, anywhere from 80 to 95% of diets will fail. Now, this is from Scientific American. According to one meta-analysis of intervention studies, dieters regain, on average, more than half of what they lose within two years. Now, one could argue that the weight regain, or as I call it, the rate of recidivism, is even greater than that. It did not take me anywhere close to that long to put half the weight back on. In fact, twice, it took me just a matter of months to pack on the 60 and 70 pounds that I had lost. A few months after that, I was 20 pounds heavier still, and there was plenty more weight still to come. That problem isn't unique, though. Not for me, not for anyone. Yet, when we fail on these so-called diets, we often feel so alone. We beat ourselves up and wonder, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be like everyone else and lose weight? Why can't I be skinny? Well, my friend, the fact is, you are just like everyone else. If 80 to 95% of diets don't work long-term, then if you're frustrated, you are solidly in the majority. Here's the best news though. This is what I love. You are also 100% among those who can lose weight and keep it off. Let me say that again. You are 100% in the same group of people who can lose weight and keep it off. You already have the same stuff as every single person who has managed to do it because there is no magic pill there's no weight loss cookie to buy or fancy program or fat burning smoothie that will be a lifelong solution. But what there is, is an unwavering desire to change, the knowledge to do it, and the belief that it can be done. So when you're talking about making these diet and lifestyle changes that Dr. Ornish and I discussed here today, don't think about what you've done in the past that has not worked. Focus instead on what does. And what works is making diet and lifestyle changes that can last the rest of your days. And what research continues to show is that eating a whole food plant-based diet is a healthy and sustainable and perhaps the very best way for you to achieve your health goals that extend far beyond just losing weight. 
this show, this conversation today was about the chronic diseases that are claiming lives by the millions every year, but yours does not have to be one of them. Yours can be a long, happy, high quality and healthy life. And we would love it. We would absolutely love to continue to help you on your journey. So please subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee on Apple podcast or wherever you get your shows. And when you do, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review so we can help others achieve their goals as well. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Dean Ornish for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.